Deadline crew call sponsors include HBO Max presenting Hacks, nominated for 15 Emmys, including Outstanding Comedy Series and Outstanding Lead Actress in a Comedy Series for Gene Smart. Here today with the executive producer and star of Showtime's new drama series, American Rust, Jeff Daniels. So um, you've starred in a number of these phenomenal dramas, such as The Newsroom and The Comey Rule and Godless. And this is the first series you've executive produced here with American Rust. And this isn't, in my opinion, this isn't discussed enough with actors. Tell me about why that is a major deal. I mean, to me, when an actor is an executive producer on their series, that means you get to come in to the writer's room, correct? Correct. But tell me about that. Tell me about, you know, having more creative control over this. Um, there are different ways to do it. You can be very involved with everybody and help everyone do their jobs. Or you can be, along with Dan Futterman, who was an exec on it. We really started with Dan Futterman and myself. I, I found the book with my manager, agent at the time, Paul Martino, also an executive producer on it, basically because he found the book back in 2005. So we kind of circled the book for 10, 15 years and... When I brought Dan on, I had just worked with him on Looming Tower. And I I am a, uh, if you hire the right people, you hear this with directors, Robert Altman said it, casting is 90% of it, of directing, right? Uh, others have said similar things. It's the same thing with building a, a company that's gonna shoot a show like American Rust. You hire someone, in my case, not someone new on the way up, I don't have time for that. I need somebody who's done it, who's been successful at it, and knows how to run that writer's room. And that was Futterman. There are others, but that was Dan Futterman said, yeah, I love the book. I really want to do it. Great. It's you. I, I met him in Brooklyn once, and that was it. I didn't tell him what to write. I didn't tell him how to write it. Um, I said hire, he hired Adam Rapp, who was also on Looming Tower, and a handful of other writers that they liked. Go hire writers that you like. And then hire a good production designer that you like. Get the good people. Get John Dahl mm -hmm. to shoot it. Get John Grillo to DP it. And then get out of their way. And I think one of the things that David Nevins and Showtime do so well, others do it too. I felt it on, on Godless with... Uh, uh, Netflix and, uh, you know, newsroom to the degree that I would cared about it. You know, I was more into McAvoy. But uh, Nevins and Showtime, they really, they hire really good people and then they go, go do what you do. I mean, they, 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 they weigh in, they're involved, but not in a way that you feel them. And, and I think Arthur Miller said it. He said, I look forward to seeing what my work inspires in others. And you got to commit to that. And so that that was basically what I did, was I got Futterman involved. 
and then stayed out of his way, uh, stayed out of John. I didn't direct anything. I don't want to direct anything. Uh, I let the directors direct and the writers write and the production designers design. Um, I, I kept an eye on the acting. Um, I, I, I spoke to the, to the kids in particular who were new to this. Um, and I learned this on newsroom. Um, get off book. Yeah. Get off book, know it and know what you're going to do with it at six in the morning when you show up. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean you're not going to bounce and play tennis with the other actor. You have to do that. There, there's a thing in television where it's no rehearsal and you use one and take one and take two, and then you got to move on. Everybody's exactly. to watch. So you can either fight that or you can embrace it. Mm-hmm. And the way to embrace it means you have to take down the mirror and you have to trust the other actor and you have to trust that half of your performance is in Maura Tierney. Mm-hmm. And so when you and Maura Tierney, so when you're, you're act, it's just another way to go act, react. But, but know it, know what you're going to do with it, and then let her move you around as the obstacle in the scene. This is actor speak. But, but then all of a sudden you're lost in it. Then it happens in front of take one. Then it happens in take two. And we've got it. I, you know, doing, Clint, doing a blood work with Clint Eastwood. Mm-hmm. Clint does one take. Yeah, yeah. One take. <laughs> so you better be ready. And you are. And then what happens is, and it's what Clint's going for, it happens for the first time in front of the camera. And if you don't know your lines or you don't haven't made choices, you just you you're you're on the wrong set. Yeah. But if you come in prepared and then use the other actor, bang, 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 bang. It happens right and that's the magic of film acting, especially when it's, you know, one and two takes. And, and great things can happen. Mistakes can happen, surely, but great things can happen out of that. And that's how we work. And I told the kids on the show, get off book and use the other actor. Take the mirror down. And I think one of the things that's, that's so strong about American Rust is that naturalistic, authentic, we feel like a fly on the wall in the room with these people. And that's just actors listening to each other therefore chemistry i've got a i have an acting question this wasn't this wasn't part of my questions but um how much of it when you're on camera is eyes and facial because you know when you're on stage you know you could just be yourself anyone could be yourself but when you got a camera on you Something like this, just raising the eyebrows, can be seismic. Can you can you comment on that? That's more of a process question. Uh, it's 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 certainly you you have. There's the reveal. The, mm-hmm. the, the these are a little actor tricks where you're looking down and then you come up and say the line. You know, there's that. You know how to use some of those movie star things, and a little can go a long way. But I found that the best way to do it is to think like your character. And and if you're thinking what he's supposed to be thinking, why'd she do that? What is she saying that for? What's going on? What what just happened over there? What you know, just get a get it running. Then all that stuff will kind of take care of itself. 
Um, but yeah, definitely when you're in tight, uh, Winger told me that on terms of endearment, you know, instead of turning your whole body and shoulder, mm -hmm. just look up, you know, she goes, act with your eyes, lead with your eyes is what she said. And that was, you know, one of the great film acting pieces of advice that I got. And it's, and it's true. And, and people like Maura, Bill Camp, I mean, they know how to, we know how to do that. We know when it's effective. And it also, it comes down to storytelling. Mm -hmm. You know, if you do it on every single line that you got, I know one actor in an indie movie I did, he, every line was like coming up, you know, with the head. It's just like, gee, you know, they're not all that important. They're not all that, we don't have to set them up. But uh, strategically placed, uh, and then it's the editing, uh, you know, how, what these guys choose to do. I remember on Newsroom, uh, we had two and three cameras going all the time. So, you're, you know, you're, am I playing the close-up? Am I here or am I wider? What am I? You're both. Oh, well, I guess I'll just talk to Emily Mortimer then. Yeah. So you just go to Emily and you just do it to Emily. And it was similar on Rusty. We had two cameras, you know, sometimes, not always, but quite a bit. And you end up just, you know, and that, that, and I learned that from that, you just go into Mora. You just, you know, just, just keep it right here and they'll find it. They'll catch it. That's their job. Our job is to do this. So. The, um, you grew up in Chelsea, Michigan. Uh, your parents owned a lumber company. How, even though American Rust takes place in the Rust Belt of Pennsylvania, how dear was this novel to you? Uh, did did it personally resonate with you? Uh, I growing up in a small town. I'm I'm aware of the how that whole town can be the entire world, the entire universe, and all the things that are good and bad that go into human nature and people living together and and dysfunctionally and all that stuff that great stories make. Um, I knew those. I knew those people. I was those people. I still am in some ways. I mean, I moved back here to raise the kids here. Um, so I, I, I didn't have to research it as much. I mean, I did on, on the opioids and the um, Pittsburgh. I did a lot of reading about Pittsburgh and that area. Um, that's just part of the research I do. But it, it, it's, uh, it, I, the, the guy... I knew he was in me mm -hmm. and, and that was, that was, I didn't quite know how he was going to roll out. You never do when you do the first season. If we get a second season, it'll be like, oh yeah, him, you know, and you fall into him, but you got to find him. And that's, that's kind of the, the danger of, of, and here we go, we're shooting. And those choices that you commit to in that first month of a five month shoot, um, if researched, if prepared, you're okay. Uh, but but it's that's when you're kind of working without a net. And uh, when and he I came out, he came out, it was it was fun to kind of see him. Oh, he, that's who he is. Oh, that's what he sounds. Oh, that's how he. Oh, that's it. it, it that's how he thinks. You you find those and you grab onto them, and then by the time you get a little bit further into the series, you're going, okay, there he is. There he is. What I like in this drama is. And it's something we don't often see in drama series. You know, when when dramas approach the opioid crisis, we usually see the worst case scenario. Someone is just, you know, plunging. 
here we have a we have your 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 police detective who is trying to get weaned off of it. I mean, those opening scenes are very fascinating. Um, can you talk about that? Um, because quite, you know, too often we hear, you know, every, you know, people become hostages of opioids. And here we have someone that's beating it, trying to beat it, really, really working on it on, in, in a measured way. Yeah, it's it's you're right. It's it's usually the person bouncing off the bottom, you know, with with opioids, and we we get into that, you know. I mean, it certainly is of that area. But Dell Harris is a guy who's trying to get off it. He's on a VA cocktail, you know, that he got PTSD in Iraq, and he's he's still it's 15 years, and he's been riding clonopin, Zoloft, and Benzedrine, and he he knows it's not good for him. I know people around here. I know, I know it's not good for me, but I'm I'm trying to come off it. But you know, my doctor said oh, I should stay on it. You know, but don't abuse it. And and you and I remember, you know, they were able to handle it. They were able to hand it out. You know, doctors and you read this in the American American Overdose is a novel I read. Um, certainly, Alex Gibney's documentary on the opioid crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, Doctors got a, got a little bit of money when they pushed antidepressants, yeah. you know, and that was kind of how it was 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it's good for them. It takes away their pain. And yeah. so, you know, you got to have it. And then, you know what, I, I feel a little numb on 40 milligrams. I think I'm going to come off it. And, you know, trying to come off it is is what Del Harris goes through. You cannot, it's very, very difficult to come go cold turkey off an opioid opioid and that becomes an element of you know somebody trying to get off it and the shakes the shakes and everything so uh it's it's this show tries to pull you into worlds like that to people who are going through that and certainly with the opioid crisis um del harris ain't the only one and what i love is the small town drama here you are you know you're you're, you, you work in the police force, you know a lot of people in town, you're having, you, you're having an, you know, you're having a romance with a woman who's, whose son is suspect. Um, talk about that, you know, when it comes to small town, that conflict of interest, that wonderful drama of conflict of interest for the character. Human beings, human nature, you know, love. You love her. You, you 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 wish you didn't. She broke your heart a year ago, six months ago, and there you are back again. And her kid gets in trouble, and you know we have a line later in the series. You know you can be you can have two reasons for doing the right thing. You know, trying to get her son cleared, um, doing what you got to do to do that. Um, you can also it's because you, you you wish you could live with her. You know, live a life with her. It's complicated. Yeah. And, and small towns are full of people with these kind of complications, uh, not specifically this, but others. And it's, you know, it ain't leave, her to, leave it to Beaver. It, yeah. It, it's, it's, they're more complicated than that. And, yeah. And that's the fun of it. It certainly is the challenge to, pay, to play this push-pull on so many different things that, that uh, um, these people go through. And it's not just Dell, it's Grace, it's 
Isaac, it's the three kids, Billy and Lee. I mean, they, they're all, Futterman and Adam Rapp, the, the writers, and, and the other writers, did such a great job of, of uh, complicating these people in a way that was plausible and believable and authentic. David, a fantastic comedy series on HBO Max, Hacks, starring Gene Smart and Hannah N. Binder. Both of them are nominated for Emmys. The show was nominated for 15 primetime Emmys. If you love comedy, if you love stand-up, if you love Vegas, this show takes you into that entire world. As Hannah plays a Hollywood writer who's working with this legendary comic doing punch-up for her. All episodes are streaming on HBO Max. Uh, going back to Looming Tower, which you did with Futterman, knowing what you prepped and researched for that series and what's going on now in Afghanistan, are you, are you not surprised at America's situation over there? Could you have seen this coming? I, I, I couldn't have. Um, I think it's, it's complicated. We don't mm -hmm. know everything. We yeah. think we do. We get on Twitter and we think we know everything. We don't. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you hope for the best. Yeah. You got people that that are that that who have fought there and died there who are asking questions. You got people that whose sons and daughters would be sent over there again, and they're going. Uh, we we can be done with this. Thank you. You know, it, it, there's. I keep looking at, you know, the Afghan army turn and ran. The, the, the head of state, the president, the prime minister of Afghanistan grabbed the money, turned and ran. Yeah. What are we supposed to do about that? You yeah. Know? It's it's complicated. And uh, I have faith in Biden and, and company to, to make the best of a very, very bad situation at this point. But it's... it's uh, uh, they've been there for 20 years and spent a lot of money and lost lives, American lives. And, and what's going on now is, is just as bad. And I'm hoping every day that there's a way out of this somehow so that nobody else has to die. What does Futterman get right in his work about with, with, with his drama? Is it the nuance of humanity? The details, yeah, uh, are, are important. The world of Buell of southwestern Pennsylvania, I thought everybody nailed that. John Dahl, who directed many episodes and also execs on it, exec produces on it, he just said, I'm going for a certain tone. And then you let John Dahl go and get that with John Grillo. They just go off and you just, you never ask them where they're putting the camera. And then you hear dailies have this look about them that, oh my God, Pittsburgh and southwestern Pennsylvania, they're... It's like a character in the in the show, the locations, the sets, the world. That I mean, it's it's so it, it's um, all of that detail, that visual detail, isn't just Futterman. It's John Dahl. It's John Grillo. The actors, you know, as we try to, we aren't trying to be larger than life here. We have mm -hmm. things that happen to us that make us do extreme things, larger than life things, perhaps, but. Um, you try to live inside these people and let people let the audience just observe them versus go to them you so have everybody did a lot of a lot of nuances and and i think dan and danny also the storytelling 
um, as you go through the nine episode season, stop it. Stop it after five. Tell me what happens next. Stop it after six. Tell me what happens next. You'll be wrong. And what does happen is plausible, logical, believable. Oh, yeah, that's, oh, God, no. Then what happens? Again, not what you think is going to happen. You know, and so I think Dan and, and Adam have done a great job of kind of keeping us off, you know, off balance in the storytelling, which is, which is, which helps pull you through the season. Uh, what I love about you is you have a theater company. Not many, not many actors have have a theater company, and you have Purple Rose. How have they been doing? How did they survive the pandemic? What's going on right now there? Uh, we're re restaffing. Uh, we've made some changes structurally. We're 30 years old, and um, I'm not going to be around forever, and neither are the couple people that are involved with running it. So we're making a, a building a theater that can live, you know, beyond us, uh, which is a different operation. Um, that um, uh, there was a lot of noise about diversity and, and white American theater. And, you know, our, our record was better than most, but not good enough. So we, we've, over the pandemic, the entire year, we worked uh, to build a diversity program, focusing mainly on playwrights and then eventually actors to bring the actors in. People of color from Detroit and around Detroit and elsewhere and and basically put get the writers writing plays and and kind of you know help them with the mechanics of that some already knew them some didn't some wanted to which is kind of what the how the purple rose started the doors open whether you're an actor director designer writer come on in we will teach you everything that jeff knows and that guy and everyone else who works at the theater has learned and can teach better than i ever could so we we've uh, we're going to open up again in January and uh, with a play that's come out of the diversity program. So we're, we're excited about it. It's uh, we want to be one of the leaders in, uh, you know, opening up the American theater and it, it, it should, it should. Do you, you know, very early on in the millennium, you directed two movies, Escanaba and the Moonlight and Super Sucker. Yeah. And you self-distributed them. That That's also very impressive. Well, uh, no, one, no one wanted them. Let's start there. Yeah. But to, to self-distribute, that's quite quite the commitment and quite the cost. Um, and, and you did it. You did it, you know, just like an indie film should. You, you move prints around the nation. You know, it was a long, uh, in my opinion, I cover box office. It was the right, you platformed. It's the right way to do it. It's the right way to do it. Uh, you know, we did another one too called Guest Artist uh, recently that Tim Busfield yes. directed. And uh, uh, same kind of thing. It's just indie films. You, you Look, they're, they're going to live forever. Uh, someone will see it eventually uh, somewhere. Uh, it's just, it's such a hard market to bust into, you know, even if you've got a, a name of sorts. So I enjoyed them. I enjoyed all three. Never do it again, but I enjoyed all three. But I mean, with streaming, would you ever come? I mean, here you have a great theater company that is a wonderful incubator to to develop material. Um, would you would you ever direct again, especially with the potential with streaming? No, no. I I I, I don't. I'm not built for it. I, I I don't care what color the sweater is that she's wearing. I don't care. 
Well, I mean, the blue one or the red one? I don't care. I remember, I remember um, Clint, when Clint, we were doing blood work, and I was in the wardrobe fitting. I have yet to meet him. Or I had met him years earlier, but on the movie, I'm in wardrobe, and then I'm going to shoot tomorrow. And there was a brown jacket, leather jacket, or a black leather jacket. Uh-huh. And, and they said, which one? I said, oh, well, I, you know, I mean, let's ask Clint. He goes, you should decide just which one. I said, I, I'd really feel better if Clint. All right. He called Clint. Yeah, yeah Clint, the, uh, there's a black leather jacket and a uh, brown leather jacket. Which, which uh-huh. do you think? He goes, which one do you think? Um, I just, uh, the brown one sounds like the brown one. <laughs> um, but you also perform, you, you perform guitar and you sing and you have an album. Yeah. Um, t- tell me about that. Tell me about the album. Tell me about, you know, pro- you know, coming back from the pandemic and performing. Um, I've always enjoyed doing that. I got out, I started out in high school musicals and college musicals, and then I went to New York and off Broadway and all that. So I've always been that I I've had a musical side. I picked up the acoustic guitar in the late seventies and, and just, that's what I did to keep myself sane. Um, I was hanging around circle rep off Broadway. All I saw were living, breathing playwrights like Lanford Wilson and Albert Inorado and others, you know, um, and the just writers, every one of them rewriting a second act. Mm-hmm. And that was thrilling to me. And I didn't think I'd get plays done anywhere. So I started writing songs and I started getting better on the. So I just played the guitar in my apartment to, basically to get, you know, stay creative between phone calls as an actor and. And then I started playing out for my theater company 25 years later, 2002. If we push a celebrity on stage with an acoustic guitar in the Midwest, you can raise money. And that doesn't mean he has to be any good, but he's, and so I'm going, I cannot suck. So I just woodshed it. I just worked and worked and worked and worked terrified. And then you learn how to do it. And then you learn that it's a character and it's you in a good mood and here are the songs and you've worked on them just like you would a speech in a show. And you can now here's your show and it's 90 minutes and it's a lot of it's very hard. There's an artistic challenge to sitting in a chair with an acoustic guitar and holding people for 100 minutes. You got it's the same thing as a play. You got to drop in the humor. You got to make them laugh set them up, soften them up, and then hit them with that song that makes them cry. And then you got to pull them back out again. And then here's a funny story about this. Clint Eastwood. Now you're doing a song called the Dirty Harry Blues. (laughs) And and, and and all of a sudden you've got an act. You've got a thing you can take around. And it's, it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. The pandemic hit. Uh, We did over 75 live streams. To help venues, we, we we played White Horse Yukon wow. to like thirty people, a venue that was shut down, and going, we'll take it. And I said, I'll do it. Yeah, you sell tickets, you cut them in, they get money, you get money. The boy, my boys, do this video thing, um, and so they, my boys, were making money. So we did, you know, we did a lot of through the venues, um, you know, through the Cafe Lena, through City Winery, through. Uh, on and on and on and on and all over the country and able to kind of help them get some money. So that that was fun. I enjoyed playing for an hour in front of a camera like it was a movie. 
you know, and then all of a sudden my son's coming around here and now you look over into that camera and now you're playing it's close up. And so we had fun with it and made it entertaining while, you know, people sat in their houses and, you know, wished this thing would go away. Before we go, tell us about returning to Kill a Mockingbird on Broadway. Um, is Rudin's, did Rudin's departure impact you creatively? Uh, and I, I hear there's some changes, correct me if I'm wrong, creatively that are that's being done to the, tweaked with the play. Is that true? I don't know about changes yet. Nobody's talked to me about that. Um, uh, Scott had wanted me, he'd been after me for six months prior mm -hmm. to him getting busted. Yeah. Um, to, to come back in. And I, you know, I just, I had done it for a year and I hadn't missed a show. Eight show a week, eight shows, 415 shows. Thanks. No. And I said, I've done it. I've done it. I've done it. And, uh, and he went away and he is away. He's banned. Mm -hmm. And, and then the new people came in and said, what it take? And I said, well, eh. and one of them was, I wanted Celia back in mm -hmm. as scout because it's a two-headed monster, this thing. Uh, it needs a great co-star, and she is. Um, Equity had made a ruling that it was the third cast that was in rehearsal to come in. They had the right of first refusal to come into the remount, not Ed Harris's cast and not the original cast. So we've got some new people coming in. There'll be energy with that, and they'll be led by two people who did it for a year. So... I'll, it'd be interesting to see what Bart and Aaron do with it. It's still relevant because white people still need to hear it. Exactly. It's a white exactly. point of view, and we make no bones about that. Mm -hmm. And if you want to write a play about Tom Robinson's point of view, write it. You'll probably get it produced, which should be a great thing. But this is from the white point of view because white people are ones who still need to hear it. So you've got Atticus Finch dealing with his own white blindness, white privilege, and how he has to, he, you know, he looks in the mirror and realizes, like, like a lot of us do, that the history of America that we think we know, we don't know. Read some Isabel Wilkerson. You'll find out that there's a whole other side to this country's history. And I think that's what Mockingbird does. It makes people, specifically a predominantly white audience, feel it. You read the play, you see the movie. No, you, you read the book, you see the movie, you feel the play. When they shut the doors at the back of the Schubert Theater every night, you're in there. And when it starts to happen, when Tom Robinson is going down, somebody that you have learned more about, learn to like, learn to root for, learn to, no, my God, no, no, no. And Atticus is given his closing argument. And then I turn to the audience and treat you like the angry white jury with their arms crossed going, just get it over with. I treat the audience like that. I talk to them as if they're the jury. It, no one moves. Night after night after night. I, that's why one of the reasons I told Scott, I said, I don't want to come back. I'll never top that, ever top that. When you see 1,400 sophisticated Broadway theater goers pinned against their seats as they're facing this huge problem that we still have in America, 
All we have to do is respect each other and get along. But there are a whole contingent of people that will not allow themselves to do that. And it's up to, I think, a lot of the white people in this country who are open to, you know what, I'm not threatened by that. I don't fear that. But I need to face it so that I understand it. And that's what Mockingbird, the play, does. Jeff Daniels, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro, and our podcast series has been produced by David Janov. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.